Amen. Please be seated. We are going to continue this morning in our sermon series in the Gospel of John, taking a look at the second half of chapter 3. If you're visiting with us this morning, you'll probably want to know uh, that I'm not the senior pastor here. Uh, My name is Nathaniel, and uh, I'm a campus minister up at Western Washington University here in town. I work with a ministry called RUF, uh, which is a college ministry uh, based out of this church at Western and also uh, nationwide across the country. Uh, our senior pastor, Nate Walker, who's actually the one up here with uh, the guitar, and we are giving him several weeks of rest uh, after his father and our friend Tony Walker passed away on New Year's Eve. Uh, but he'll be back here in the pulpit next Sunday. So uh, if you're visiting, you should come back. Um, we're going to take a look at this passage uh, in John 3, uh, beginning in verse 16. But it is the continuation of a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. And so to give us the context for that conversation, I'm actually going to start reading at the very end of John chapter 2. Uh, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along, uh, I'll start at John uh, 2.23. Or you can just wait until I... Uh, get to For God So Loved the World, and uh, pick it up there in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he, that's Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, We know. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever who does not believe 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you uh, for this morning that we have to gather together uh, with each other in your presence, with your spirit and your word, uh, and the company of all the saints who've gone before us. Thank you for Uh, the relationship that you had with Nicodemus and the work that you did in his heart and the relationship that you invited him to. I pray through these words in your spirit you would work in our hearts this morning, uh, drawing us to yourself that we may see you and love you all the more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, When I was an undergrad, uh, along the way I picked up a minor in geology because I liked being outside so much. And uh, one of the geology classes that I took in the fall of one of the years I was at the University of Washington was a class specifically on glaciers. Uh, Because we have a lot of glaciers and glacial landforms in the Northwest. And one of the projects, one of the assignments in that class was to write a research paper on a specific glacier. And I picked the Blue Glacier on Mount Olympus in Olympic National Park on the Olympic Peninsula, because that's one of my favorite places. And after weeks and months of reading and researching about this glacier and looking at pictures and historical pictures and maps, I finally decided, you know, if I'm going to spend this much time reading about this thing, I might as well go and meet it. Uh, And it is not easy to get to. It's about 17 miles in from the parking lot, and most of the stuff I wanted to see was not near a trail anyway. And uh, I know a lot of you are really into hiking. Uh, If you are not an experienced hiker, there's a few things you'll want to know. One... uh, You should never go hiking by yourself. (laughs) Ever. Uh, Two, you should also know that you do not have a friend that wants to go hiking with you in Olympic National Park in November (laughs) and go off trail. Uh, And three, you should know that when you're 22, the rules somehow just don't apply to you. Uh, so I decided to go by myself. Um, I had a Thanksgiving dinner with some extended family, packed up the car the next morning, headed straight out to the Olympic Peninsula, hiked in the 17 miles, and uh, pitched my tent and went to sleep and went to bed. And the next morning I got up, made breakfast, and was excited for my off-trail adventures. My plan was to leave my tent where it was and uh, ventured down into the river valley and look uh, for some old landforms, circle back up to where the glacier is, find the trail, and make it back down to my tent in one day. And uh, this turned out to be the day that I discovered a few things. One, that uh, off-trail work in Olympic National Park does not go quickly. And so by the time that I'd made it up the river valley up to the foot of the glacier, uh, the sun was already setting. And I was beginning to get stressed and feeling a little bit of desperation. And then I discovered that uh, 
my plan to reach the end of the glacier and then just go around the side a few hundred yards up to where the trail is and catch the trail was not a good one because the glacier is uh, nestled in between vertical rock walls. And I did not bring ice climbing equipment with me. That was not my thing. And so there was literally no way to get from where I was to the trail. And uh, I actually tried um, with a fork <laughs> to see if I could, like, make my way up the glacier. And that did not end successfully. Uh, and so I got increasingly desperate and devised a series of increasingly desperate plans on how to get back to my tent uh, because if you have not had the experience of spending a night out in the wilderness by yourself without your tent that you did not intend to spend that way, it is not a fun experience. And uh, I was uh, desperately determined to make it back and so tried a series of increasingly crazy things, uh, which I can tell you about later. The climax of the story has me in pitch darkness on the side of a cliff with uh, crumbling dirt and rocks below me cascading down into a raging river that I cannot see, and a rock wall above me, and I am trapped in the dark on the side of a cliff. And so at this point, uh, I had a good cry, and then I prayed and negotiated with God, because what else are you, you going to do in such a situation? And I promised him that if he just got me off the cliff, that I was going to stop trying to save myself. Uh, and then I shimmied along to my right, and after a few minutes found this point where the rock wall curved out, and there was this little person-sized notch in the side of the cliff. And so I crawled in there, and I spent the night there. Uh, that feeling of desperation and the knowledge that not only can you not save yourself, but the more that you try, the worse that it gets um, I think in this passage, part of what Jesus wants us to see is that a, that is an essential emotional experience for us to have about ourselves in relationship with the Lord. Um, that a pastor I once knew was fond of saying that all faith begins with desperate faith. And I'm inclined to agree with him. That uh, in this passage in John, we have perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible, the perhaps best one-verse statement of the gospel, uh, the good news of what God has done for us. And it, it is placed in the middle of this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus, where he is inviting Nicodemus to consider the fact that uh, Christianity, that salvation and relationship with him necessarily involve a complete change of heart. Uh, and just like my inability to get myself off the side of that cliff, uh, it is a change of heart that we are not able to produce ourselves. Um, the first thing I want us to see in this passage this morning, though, is just the amazing and humbling beauty of the gospel that is being offered to us. Let's take a look at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Uh, I mentioned that this is the gospel. Gospel is one of these Christian words that we like to throw around. It actually has its origin in Greek and Roman culture uh, from a word that means good news. In its original context, it would be a, a pronouncement, probably from the government, about some great event that had happened, the birth of a new king or a victory in war. 
Uh, as far as I know, the Roman government uh, did not experience government shutdowns. But I imagine if they did and a government shutdown ended, that perhaps the news would come out as a gospel. The gospel, the government has, has reopened. Um, in a Christian context, the gospel, good news, is news about something that God has done on our behalf. And the first piece of the good news is that God so loved the world that God's relationship with the world, with us, uh, is first and foremost characterized by love. Um, The whole plan of salvation was drawn up out of God's deep desire to redeem the race of men he had created and not have them lost forever. Uh, A pastor I once knew who had planted a church Um, was talking about church planning. We have a couple guys, Craig and John, are both in the process of gearing up to plant a church. So this pastor was saying, when you're interviewing a potential church planter uh, and you want to know what his church is going to most fundamentally be about, and you ask him, what is your church going to be about? And he'll probably give you a really long answer and you can ignore the whole thing except for the first thing that he says. Because whatever that first thing that comes out of his mouth, that's what it's going to be about. And so when God talks about his redemptive church planting effort in the world, the first thing we hear is that God so loved the world. It's amazing because it's first characterized by love, and it's amazing because it's a love for the world. It's not North America or South America or Asia or Africa. It's the whole world. But in John, the world doesn't necessarily even have a geographic connotation. The world has a negative connotation. When John, who wrote this for us, uh, talks about the world, what he's talking about is the darkness of the world, the the brokenness, uh, the evil, the propensity that men and women have to harm one another and be deceitful to each other for their own advantage to try and claw ahead. John later says in one of his letters in 1 John, he forbids us to love the world or any of the things of the world, that we as Christians, we are not supposed to love the world. The world is specifically that which is dark. And here in this context, God loves the world, that world. He loves even those who are mired in the midst of a deep, sinful darkness. There's a Japanese theologian, uh, Kazo Kitimori, who's a Christian, but grew up in a different culture. And so uh, I think has a chance to pick up on different things than we do in the gospel. And uh, he wrote this book about God and who he is. And one of the things that he says over and over again, um, and so this is coming from a culture that understands shame on a whole different level. Uh, You know, why would you shame yourself and bring shame upon your family? And so he says what's happening in the gospel is that God embraces those who should not be embraced. That we as human beings are people mired in shame. That our definition is those who should not be embraced. And yet God's first and fundamental desire is to embrace us. He embraces those who should not be embraced. And that experience, though joyful, causes him pain. And what that pain looks like is Jesus on the cross. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That the gift that God gives to pay out 
to make his love for the world okay, you can tell the quality of his love by the quality of the gift that he gives over. And the gift that he gives over is his one and only begotten son, of whom he says elsewhere, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That Jesus is the one human who did all things well. In him, a grace and mercy meet and somehow are both satisfied at the same time. Uh, when John sees Jesus in Revelation, he's glowing. He's difficult to look at because he's so glorious. And God gives over his son through the incarnation and the crucifixion because of his love for the world, for the brokenness and darkness of the world. Not only that, verse 17 God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. That the point of this whole thing is not condemnation. Which I think for most of us, whether we recognize it or not, that's kind of our, our default setting. Is, well, of course God is mad at us, and, and we should watch out for that. But it says here, he does not send his son into the world to condemn the world. John Calvin says of this passage that God does not want us to be overwhelmed in everlasting destruction. He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The one thing required of us in the whole thing is that we should believe, that we should receive, that we should recognize God's love for the world and think, I think God loves the world. And we should recognize Jesus as his son offered on our behalf and think that is amazing. I would love to receive that. It is a complete reversal of what we usually say that it is more blessed to give than to receive, right? But in the gospel, it's actually more blessed to receive. That our one job is to receive what has been given on our behalf. There's nothing for us to do to receive this honored status. Just before this, Jesus' analogy is, hey, salvation, it's like when in the wilderness that Moses lifted up a serpent on a stick and people just looked at it. And everyone who looked at it survived. And everyone who didn't, didn't survive, this is like that. And it takes a certain amount of belief to engage in the process of looking at the serpent, at the, proce the process of looking upon Christ and believing that he's the one. But that's really, it's as simple as that. You just believe it. Yeah, I just looked at him. And he's paid for our sins and welcomed us into the Father's company. It is the redemptive end of every fairy tale. It is the moment that Cinderella becomes the queen. Right? And the beast from Beauty and the Beast is restored to himself and more than himself, both beautiful physically and beautifully internally. The frog becomes a prince again. Uh, Rembrandt, uh, a painter from the 1600s, uh, was fond of painting biblical scenes. And one of his most famous paintings is when he painted a picture of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. And if you look at the picture, the woman has her head bowed down in shame, and she is looking at the ground. And Jesus is standing over her. And in Rembrandt's style, all of the details in the background fade away. There's not many details there. And it feels as if half of the detail of the whole painting is Jesus' face. And you just want her to look up at his face 
and see the way that he is looking upon her, not with condemnation and not with rage or disappointment, but with pure delight and love and desire for her to receive his compassion. This beautiful, humbling gospel is the redemptive end of every fairy tale. Well, if it's this redemptive fairy tale, this beautiful gospel is placed in a world, in the context of a story that also makes it a tragedy. Because we've been given this beautiful and amazing offer of forgiveness and relationship with the gospel, and people reject it. Who does that? Who rejects a chance for Cinderella to become the queen? As beautiful as God's love is, and as generous and gracious as it is, as much as if it doesn't require anything from us, still, we reject it. Paul, uh, another apostle who communicated the gospel in his day, in this day, um, wrote many letters. In 2 Corinthians, he's talking about his ministry. He's traveling around telling people about this same gospel. And he describes his ministry this way. He says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, everywhere Paul goes, he's telling this message of Jesus that God so loved the world and gave his only son. And everywhere he goes, just by his speaking and his character and his personality, the gospel is effervescing out of him like an aroma, like a scent. And some people receive it. And from them, it's the aroma of life to life, life that gives more life. And to some people, it's the aroma of death. An aroma of death that leads to more death. This is why I think it's so helpful to see John 3.16 in the context of the conversation with Nicodemus. Because Nicodemus is, for all intents and purposes in the first century, a good man. He's moral. He does all the right things. He's an outstanding citizen. He's part of the Pharisees. He cares a lot about God's character. And to top it all off, he recognizes that Jesus is important. A lot of people don't even received Jesus, and he totally gets it. His first words are, Jesus, we know that you are from God. And Jesus basically says, you don't know. That even someone like Nicodemus, uh, with this uh, outward moral righteousness, he's got everything together. Still, Jesus' interaction with him is not to affirm all of his beautiful theology and behavior, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus is a conversation wherein he's inviting him to admit his own darkness and his own need to have his heart changed. Jesus coming into the world brings light. And light illuminates. And it makes yet more clear what's good and what's evil. And for those of us who have darkness, it makes the darkness clear. The problem is that all, all of us have darkness. Verse 19, the judgment is this, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. And they loved the darkness because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light 
and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So we as human beings have received this amazing, humbling, beautiful offer in the gospel, and people reject it. Because you can't come to the light without having your darkness exposed, and it's too painful to go there, and so as a result, we just don't go there. It is the ultimate tragedy, wherein the fairy tale ending is offered, and you walk away from it. Um, in the book and the play Les Miserables, there's a character who spends years and years in prison, Jean Valjean. He's a convict. Finally, he's released from prison, and he goes wandering about trying to reestablish himself as a person. Everyone can tell that he's a convict, and everyone rejects him. He literally can't find a thing to eat or a place to sleep. And so finally, having run out of places to go, he knocks on the door of a bishop. And the bishop receives him in, feeds him a wonderful dinner, and gives him a comfortable place to stay. At last, he's received friendship in spite of everything that he deserves and love and grace and acceptance. And in response, he gets up in the middle of the night and thinks, now's my chance, takes his bag, grabs all the silverware, throws it in and takes it off. It's the thief who cannot imagine true forgiveness and so is unwilling to give up thiefdom. It's Jesus' picture of Nicodemus. And by extension, all of us in the gospel. Sometimes our own darkness, as we dig down into it, is covered over with confidence and knowledge, just as it was with Nicodemus. We know we do right. And yet Jesus, in sadness, looks at us and says, you, you don't know. And so, this is the point where we feel the desperation that all faith begins with desperate faith, that the gospel's been offered to us uh, of our very nature. We reject it. And we have a desperate need that something else should happen. And that's why we hear this in verse 3. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is necessary is not just the gospel. What is necessary is that we should be born again. Um, being born, as an analogy, implies a beginning of life. And Nicodemus is like, well, it doesn't really work this way. I'm already alive. And Jesus is saying, you're alive, but also, no, you're not. And there's a need for you to become alive. Also, birth is something that you have no control over. You don't get to choose whether or not we're born or when we're born, at what hour or day or time or place. And just as surely, the Holy Spirit works in our heart in his own timeline and his own way to bring life. And the best way I can think of to describe what life looks like is softness of heart. That the gospel is beautiful. We're filled with shame because of our own darkness. And softness of heart invites us, in spite of our own darkness, to open up to the light and receive the possibility that our, our darkness can be forgiven and we can be received. Those who are born again are regenerated. According to verse 16, they have eternal life. 
According to verse 17, they're saved. And according to verse 21, they come to the light. The light shines. All of us mired in darkness. It's difficult to take. And yet for those who've been born again, if the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart, you move towards it still in spite of everything. Some, uh, many authors have talked about the difference between guilt and shame. That guilt is a sense that I've done something wrong, which is true and helpful because that accurately describes who we are. Shame is the sense that because I've done something wrong, therefore I am wrong. And shame is that thing that keeps us from the gospel. Um, And that in the gospel, in new birth and being born again, the Spirit gives us the courage to expose our guilt and find out that shame is not necessary. Uh, In uh, one of his books in the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis in um, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader tells the story of a rather miserable young man named Eustace. Uh, who's irritable, nobody likes him, he gets sucked into Narnia unwillingly and uh, eventually wanders off on his own because he's so disgusted with everyone else, finds a pile of treasure, and very pleased with himself, falls asleep on the treasure and wakes up to discover that he has become a dragon Uh, and uh, flies around back to where the other children are, and everyone is terrified of him. And so the experience of being a dragon is increasingly painful, emotionally, but also physically, because he has this gold band that fit on his arm when he was a boy that doesn't really fit anymore as a dragon. And so he tries to desperately, under his own power, claw off his dragonness to no avail. Uh, And then finally he meets Aslan, who is a lion, and the Jesus figure in the story. And after a bit of conversation, Aslan says this to them, you will have to let me undress you. The very first tear that Aslan made, this is used to describing the experience, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled off the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than I had thought. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't much like that, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I had turned into a boy again. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me in new clothes. That the process of being born again and receiving this gospel necessarily entails having our own darkness exposed 
at least in the presence of Jesus, and having it dug out. And what new birth gives us is, is enough courage to believe that if we survive that process, what comes out on the other side is, as C.S. Lewis calls it, delicious. That what happens in the new birth by the work of the Spirit, it's the moment where Eustace becomes a boy and a much nicer boy than he had ever been before. It's the moment where Jean Valjean, having been caught, returns to the bishop and the bishop says, Oh, take the silverware. Here's the candlesticks too. And is forever transformed by the grace that he's received. It's the moment where the woman caught in adultery looks up and sees Jesus' face and believes that God so loved the world that he even loved her. Christianity necessarily involves a complete change of heart. And we cannot provide it for ourselves, but God will and does provide it for us. This conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus just trails off. Jesus says, Nicodemus says something, and Jesus says something, and Nicodemus says something, and then Jesus says something, and then he says another something, and then he says another something, and then we just go on to the next story. And we're led to assume that Nicodemus just shuts up at some point and walks away. Because Jesus is inviting him into that painful renewal that we just heard about that Eustace went through, and he is not up for it yet. But here's the other thing, that God is at work, and he is not done with Nicodemus, and we will hear from him again in the Gospel of John twice more. Considering all these things in light of ourselves, is our spiritual life, is your spiritual life, one that is based on ever-increasing morals and righteousness, wherein you demonstrate to God and others how much you have it together? Or is it based on the joy of having been the ugly one and now having been brought in to Jesus' presence and received his love? Have you ever known yourself to be truly ugly? And have you known that Jesus loved you then, just as he loves you now? And do you experience an ever-creasing love and enthusiasm and joy for being in Jesus' presence and to be reminded over and over and over again the way that he feels about you then and now and tomorrow? Because of nothing else other than the fact that you just receive it. Also, when you think about your relationship with others, perhaps maybe especially those who would not describe themselves as Christian, here's a few things to remember. One, God is at work in every person that you have ever met, Christian or non-Christian, God is at work in some way or another communicating his gospel some people are moving towards it. Some people are moving away from it. But God is working and he is accomplishing his purposes. And so for your, in your relationship with them, the most helpful thing you can do is ask yourself and pray, what is God doing in this person's life? And the second most helpful thing you can do is pray for them. Because what is most necessary is the work of the Holy Spirit. Every time... Someone becomes a Christian. 
and receives the gospel and believes in Jesus, a miracle has happened. Something has happened that by the nature of the case should never happen. Except that the Holy Spirit did something just as majestic as the crossing of the Red Sea and the creation in the beginning. That he has birthed a life. Also, it takes time. God's work takes time. He is a God of process. It took time with Nicodemus. It's taken time with you. It's going to take time with you. And it's going to take time with your friends and your family. Uh, I heard at one point that Barna did a research study around the world, and they found people who were Christians who didn't grow up Christian. And they asked them all the question, from the time that you first had a meaningful contact with a Christian, how much time do you think went by before you would say, yeah, that's right, I'm a Christian? And in North America, the average was somewhere between two and four years. In England, it was 10 years. And in France and Japan, it was between 15 and 20 years. And so what does it look like for our relationships of love, our evangelism, to conceive of them primarily being about partnering with God's work that he is doing through prayer over the course of 20 years? And to maintain hope. The essence of our whole religion is gazing in amazement at Jesus. Just as the Israelites look to the serpent, we refocus our vision off of ourselves and our shame and onto the glory of the Son. Um, there is a, a pastor in our denomination who's uh, fairly well known. Uh, I'm not going to name him, but he's shared his story publicly many times, so I'm not sharing something that's not already out there. Uh, he was the pastor of a large, famous PCA church in a rich neighborhood with a lot of rich people that had a lot of high expectations for their pastor in terms of his preaching, in terms of his being with them. And uh, this guy is an amazing speaker. He's an amazing pastor, would sit with people, uh, everyone loved him, and yet through all the years of this amazing ministry that everyone wanted to learn from and everybody wanted to know about inside, he could never get over the feeling that he was not enough. That at the next point, if he didn't produce another amazing sermon or meet with another person with just the right words, that he would be rejected. And the weight crushed him. And eventually he got a back injury, and his doctor prescribed some narcotics. And he discovered that they are amazing. Uh, Both in terms of not being able to feel his back pain and in terms of not being able to feel all kinds of other pain. And so when his back got better, he discovered that he felt like he could overfunction even more when he was on the medication. Stay up later, prepare more, do better sermons, meet with more people. And so he kept on taking the pills until they were gone. And then he got a doctor friend in the congregation to prescribe him some more, claiming that he had pain that he didn't really have. And then he started stealing pills out of people's bathrooms at meetings at their houses. And this went on for years until he was discovered and his session fired him. And uh, I've said with friends before that usually at this point, a person exposed, it goes one of two directions. There's not a lot in the middle. Either you get this immediate sense of desperation 
that I have done something horribly wrong and I'm unable to help myself and it's really bad being caught, but I'm also really thankful. Please help me. Or it's wall after wall after wall. And I might not even say I'm sorry, but I'm still not going to tell you the whole story until you find more. And they'll be like, oh yeah, I'm sorry about that too. And thankfully, in this man's case, what we got was the first track. He went through rehab, started doing counseling with his wife, and it was not easy. I imagine it was painful, like it was for Eustace, and it took years. And uh, he would now tell you, and his wife would now tell you, that they are closer and close in a way that they never were before. And that he would tell you that he loves Jesus and feels Jesus' love for him in a way that he never did before. And then you know what happened? His church hired him back as an assistant pastor. And he happily took a position assisting the man who replaced him and traveling around telling his story and inviting other pastors and people to not run away from their own darkness and talking about the glory of being exposed and truly believing that God loves the world, even you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving people, uh, even like me, like us. Thank you for the life and the joy that you have built and are continuing to build in our community. I pray for more joy and more life and more realization of what you have done and more people to come here and to receive the same grace and to love it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.